This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Affirm Films' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick Brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Well, for most of us, the upcoming 20th anniversary of 9-11 is a reminder of one of the worst days any of us have ever gone through. I remember watching those hijacked airplanes slam into the World Trade Center towers and really just in horror and disbelief watching as the towers collapsed. It was like a movie, but it was a nightmare. We couldn't escape. It was really the darkest day a lot of us can remember. But of course, the experience was far different for the family members who had loved ones working in those towers. And today we will be talking to one of them. Shelly Genovese Calhoun was married to Steve Genovese, who was a partner and over-the-counter trader at Cantor Fitzgerald, located on the 104th floor of the North Tower. Steve was killed by those terrorists on September 11, 2001. He was one of 658 Cantor Fitzgerald employees who lost their lives that day. But for Shelly, her faith in Christ and her knowledge that Steve was a Christian made all the difference between hopelessness and hope and she tells her incredible story in her book called twice blessed a journey of hope through 9-11 and we're just honored to have you here Shelley. welcome thank you so much for being with us thank you so much for having me well i know you have told your story quite a few times over the last few decades but i would imagine the 20th anniversary is somewhat different does it feel different to you with the 20th year uh, marking that terrible day coming close um, I mean, I think that all years pretty much feel about the same. Um, I actually only wrote the book two years ago, um, so it was kind of a journey through healing of writing the book for several years. Yeah. Um, so I think the last two years, have, um, I've actually been filled with, um, I've, I've just felt a little bit more complete because I feel like God has really just worked on me through, you know, writing the book and just telling my story. Yeah, I'm sure it was cathartic, and I'm so, so sorry for your loss. I can't imagine what it's like. But you tell your story, and it's very interesting. You've had a very full life. You're a Texan. You were a model, a pageant winner. Now you're an author. You're a wife and mother. But it's very interesting to see how the Lord brought you through meeting your husband. Can you tell a little bit about that story and how it was that you finally married Married, Steve? Right. Well, I say that God uh, probably put me in the modeling industry just, um, of course, by no chance, but it was just so that I could um, meet Steve. Um, I had modeled for years and, um, and, and did pageants, but I was on a job, actually, and met him, and it was kind of just love at first sight, and um, immediately was just so taken by him. Um, we, dated for, um, we dated for several months, and I was actually so already, so already in love with him. Um, and then realized that, you know, we were actually just very, very different in our faiths. We had just um, been brought up so differently. And um, he attended church um, most of his life, but he really did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I knew that, you know, if um, I were to get married one day, that I would want somebody that, you know, shared my same, you know, faith and my same values and, you know, who depended on, you know, um, Jesus as his Lord and Savior. So mm-hmm. we had um, we dated for a while, and I knew actually that, I probably was not going to be able to continue on in this relationship. You know, that that wouldn't be God's perfect will for my life. But um, I prayed about it, and um, eventually Steve actually accepted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. Mm -hmm. So 
that's pretty much what this book's all about is just, you know, knowing that um, we don't know, you know, what our tomorrow may bring, but just having Christ, you know, as our foundation and knowing that we can spend eternity, you know, with him in heaven is just, you know, our, our eternal hope. Oh, it's everything. Well, it's interesting because you say you became a Christian when you were little. Was it nine years old? You're, you're the woman who cleans your house was a Christian. Yes. <laughs> Tell yes. us about that. Well, you never know who God's going to put in your life. Um, I grew up in a family that was just um, um, wonderful, wonderful family, but we just really didn't go to church. We attended church on Christmas and Easter, but not, you know, on a regular basis. So I knew a little about Jesus, but I really, you know, had never accepted him, you know, as my Savior. And um, there was this lady who cleaned our house once a week, and she would walk around, and she just had this joy that was just contagious. And I followed her around, and she would tell me stories, and she just one day said, you know, have you ever asked, you know, Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? And I said, I have not. And she said, well, you know, you need to go to a secret place, and you need to, you know, pray and, you know, um, tell him that you believe in him. And then, you know, it's as simple as just asking him to be, you know, your Savior and to live inside your heart forever. And I did, you know, just that as a nine-year-old. I actually crawled inside my mom and dad's dirty clothes hamper. (laughs) (laughs) And I was sitting there, and it was just, you know, a sincere, innocent, innocent prayer, you know, of a child's heart that just um, changed my life forever. Yeah. Wow. It's it's just amazing when you look back at those innocent times. Now, you married Steve and he was from the East Coast, obviously working in New York City. So what was that like adjusting from Texas going to the East Coast? Well, it was really, really an adjustment because I was super, super close to my family. And so, um, you know, of course, I was so in love and just had this magical life. But, you know, it was definitely an adjustment. Um, you know, when you live in the South, um, I think you walk around and you see people in Starbucks and they're all doing Bible studies. And, yes, <laughs> just, yes. you know, it's just I think I had to search it out, you know, more when I was there. I had to really find, um, you know, my people. I had to find people who believed the same way that I believed and, you know, who would um, be godly friends and be able to um you know, be there for me and lift me up. Right, of course. Well, I thought it was very telling and and, an interesting but tragic fact that Steve actually had survived the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. That's just unbelievable. Did that change the way that he thought about going to work at all? Or did he just kind of say, well, that was one thing that I went through and I'm alive and, and everything is fine from here? How did he handle that? Right. You know, we had talked about it on several occasions, um, and I remember him even telling me that he knew that, you know, his his building was, you know, um, a place that, you know, people would look out to attack just because it was, you know, financial freedom for America. Um, so I think that, you know, he knew that his building, you know, was um, something that could, you know, be a dangerous factor. But, you know, he had gotten out of that 1993 attack, and, um, of course, when September 11th um, happened, of course, I thought, Okay, he had, you know, made it out of the 1993 bombing and, you know, he will be able to get out of this too. Right. What was that morning like? It was very ordinary. I know many, many families have focused in on the fact that it just seemed like any other morning. It was a beautiful morning that morning. What do you recall about how the day unfolded? Well, I mean, uh, you wake up, I just, you know, fallen asleep in his arms and, um, you know, he kissed me on, um, he kissed me on the cheek and he, he actually turned off the ringer that was beside my, my bed so that I wouldn't wake up, um, you know, to any soliciting calls or just any calls. We had a 16-month-old daughter, so he knew that she would eventually wake up and then we would <laughs> be awake. Um, so he kissed me on the cheek and then he left for the day. I'm sure he went in to um, see his precious daughter, too. Um you know, that morning, um, the phones just were ringing off the hook, but I didn't, you know, hear anything ringing because, you know, the phone had been turned off, and I also slept with a box fan, so it muffled noise from, you know, any other room. Mm. But, um, 
but the cool thing about it is that my mother was actually in town and my godmother was in town who is was her best friend and you know that was just god's grace alone that they were just there to be with me you know what was about to be that you know most um horrific day of my entire life oh so horrible and steve left you a message what did he say in the message right well, so my mother actually ran into my room after she had, um, you know, answered the phone in her bedroom, and she ran into my room, and she said, you know, Shelly, turn on the TV. Something's happened to Steve's building. You know, one of our dear friends had called us and let us know that something had happened. So, um, you know, with my eyes barely opened, I turned on the TV, and I saw Steve's building on fire. And, um, you know, immediately, I mean, it's like you're watching a movie. It's like you're watching something that's not real. So... I kind of, you know, sit there, and I didn't, I didn't panic immediately. I think I was just kind of in shock. Um, but immediately I started trying to call Steve, you know, trying to find out where he was. Um, you know, and he did not, of course, answer the phone because all the phones had been, you know, just inundated with calls from that region, so I wasn't able to get in touch with him. Um, finally, my mom said, you know, some, the phone has been ringing. Why don't you try to, you know, retrieve your voicemails? So once I did, you know, I heard a um, a call from my husband, um, and with just fear in his voice, uh, he just said, you know, Shelly, answer the phone, pick up the phone, something's happened to my building, something's happened to the World Trade Center, and um, it was like it just kind of clicked off and just went silent, and you could just hear the chaos and stuff in the background, you know, as he was speaking, and mostly it wasn't what he said, it was just kind of the fear and terror in his voice, which I, of course, um, had never heard before, I'd never heard this strong man that had taken care of me and that was my husband. I'd never, you know, heard that that voice before. Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, and of course, as you mentioned before, you had a little girl, but you had your mom and her friend there, your godmother. And I want to get into more of your story, Shelley. We're going to pause for a very short break. We'll be coming back with Shelley Genovese Calhoun, Twice Blessed, A Journey of Hope Through 9-11 is her book. And we'll come back on Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. From Affirm Films comes the Kendrick Brothers' Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous take moviegoers on a cinematic journey that invites you to think differently about your earthly father and how you relate to God through five true stories. I'm stunned. He's real. He's really out there. And this is really him. This is really him. Show Me the Father. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. In theaters Friday. More information is available at showmethefathermovie.com. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
If you're looking for adventure, serving as a volunteer on the Mercy Ship is an adventure like no other. And you'll be serving on the largest non-governmental hospital ship in the world, providing free care to some of the world's poorest people. Whether it's performing a surgery, cleaning the deck, or transporting a patient to a recovery center, every day you'll be making a difference in the lives of struggling people. Begin your adventure today. Connect with us at mercyships.org. It's an adventure of a lifetime. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are coming up very closely now to the 20th anniversary of the September 11th Islamic terrorist attacks on America. In some ways, it doesn't seem like it was 20 years ago, but so much has happened. And it is always a wonderful testimony when you can hear a Christian who was intimately involved in the events of that day give testimony to the grace and love of God and especially the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Shelly Genovese Calhoun is with us. Twice Blessed, A Journey of Hope Through 9-11 is her story. And we were talking before the break about your husband, Steve, and how he was on the 104th floor of the North Tower and lost his life that day. Your mom was there. Your godmother was there. You watch TV. Do you remember much about how you were coping in those moments when you had the TV on and you knew that Steve was in the tower? Right. You know, at first I wasn't really um, afraid because he had left a message, and, you know, immediately the news was speculating that, you know, a private plane had hit the building. Yes. Um, when the second tower was hit, when the south tower was hit, um, I think that's when fear and terror, you know, of course, just kind of entered, you know, into all of our minds and hearts, just um, knowing that our country was under attack. Um, and so I think that um, then this, the south tower collapsed, and, of course, when that collapsed, I remember thinking, like, I mean, honestly, I said, thank God that wasn't my husband's building. I mean, I just was only could comprehend and I could only think about my husband at that point, yeah. um, just because it was all that my mind could handle. Of course. Um, I sat there and, you know, of course, I just prayed and I prayed that, you know, Steve would have more time to escape and get out, um, not knowing that the, you know, North Tower would collapse also. Um, and then the North Tower collapsed. And when the North Tower collapsed, of course, I fell to the ground and collapsed with the tower, um, you know, and just laid on the floor just screaming and crying out mm-hmm. to God. And, um, you know, I remember saying, save Steve, Lord, please just save Steve. If you can only save one, save Steve. And um, this peace came over me. I just, I sat there and it felt like I just had this calmness over me, just kind of like that the Lord was just calming the raging seas. And I felt this peace so strongly that I believed at that moment that, Steve was saved, and I believe that he was coming home. Um, but of course, I would later find out that the peace that you know I had, and that the Lord gave me that day, that was the peace that Steve was home. That you know, that the moment the towers just crumbled to the ground, that Steve was lifted, you know, from the hundred and fourth floor, straight into the arms, you know, of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you. How did you deal with the aftermath? Uh, clearly, there have been many years since, but the immediate aftermath, the last few years having a little girl and dealing with just all the things that you obviously had to deal with as a widow of somebody who died in the towers. What, what, what did you learn from that period of time after the tower collapsed and, and just dealing with Steve's death? I've learned so much. (laughs) Of course, I mean, I thank you. You know, I think I didn't even know who I was, but, um, you know, I I was definitely learning who my God was, and I was learning that he was so big and so faithful. Um, You know, I just felt his presence so, so near me. You know, I I, I just would go into my closet, and I call it my hiding place, 
and, you know, I just hid myself in the Lord, and I just, you know, I had to just cling to the faith and hope that, you know, that only He can give, because I had nothing else. I mean, there were days that, of course, I did not want to get out of bed. Um, Of course, I had my 16-month-old daughter that, of course, I would hear her voice, and I would... um, you know, know that I had to. I had to be strong for her. I had to be a mother for her. She had lost a father, and, you know, I didn't want her to lose a mother, too. Right. Um, but, you know, I just learned that God was my all in all, and just to cling to Him, and just um, that He would be there. Well, that's all you can do. And I know it was several years after that that you remarried. Tell us about your husband, Heath. Mm-hmm. Well, um, of course, it was, you know, it was, it was difficult to start dating after, um, you know, you've been um, widowed. It was, um, you know, I had a lot of fear of dating. I had fear of what people would think, and I just had to realize, um, you know, finally that um, that it would be okay that I dated, and I just had to let those those fears just just put them out of my head because I I knew that you know that God would wanted me to happy. And I knew that He had this hope and this future for me. So, um, you know, it, but it was very difficult to date after um, being widowed. Um, I started dating um, Heath, and we had on again, off again, you know, relationship for years because I would get close to him and then I would say oh I just can't do this mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I just because I loved Steve so much and I just could not understand that if I still loved somebody else how I could date someone mm-hmm. um, but you know I realized that you know God definitely was going to give me a big enough heart to be able to love you know both men right well you knew Heath before you knew Steve that was interesting right. yeah right <laughs> I had met um, Heath and um, when I was like 19 he was um, we'd gone out on a couple of dates, um, never even held hands, <laughs> but we just, you know, we'd gone out on a couple of dates. I think he knew back then that I was just a really good, um, nice Christian girl, and I, he had just come, moved to Dallas, and I think he was, and he was brought up in a Christian family, but I think in his time, at that time in his life, that's not what he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, yeah. he was like, whoa, we're going to pray before our meal? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's not going to be a second date. But anyway, but I think he always really respected me, and I think that, you know, I always he always remembered me. So um, after, you know, 9-11, um, about a year after 9-11, we had run into each other, and um, he was so, so sweet and kind, and he said, um, you know, I've been praying for you, and I just want you to know, you know, you, real, you and your daughter have definitely been in my thoughts and my prayers. And it was kind of like I saw this different side of Heath that I'd really never seen, um, you know, and it was pretty special. Oh, wow. And now you have a son as well. Yes. We have a a 14-year-old son. He's a freshman in high school. Wow. What do you tell the kids about Steve? And how do you handle the, you know, just going back in time and trying to explain what happened? And that would be, I would imagine, especially when your daughter was younger in particular, that would have been a little bit difficult to handle. How did you handle that? Right. Well, when she was really, really little, I mean, of course, we just told her that her daddy was in heaven with Jesus. I mean, she just, um, even when she was tiny, when she was 16 months old, she would point up to the sky and say, my daddy's in heaven. (laughs) And, um, of course, it was heartbreaking. um, But it was also very, very special that she just, you know, took comfort in that. And she was just always surrounded by so many people that just loved her, you know, dearly that um, we prayed that she would just... um, you know, not be as affected by this tragedy. Um, and then with my son, I think that he's just, he's always known that, you know, um, that Jay's dad, you know, was killed in 9-11. And, um, you know, it's just, 
my husband, my husband now, Heath, was adopted, and then Jay, of course, has her father who's in heaven, and then, you know, Cash is ours together. So I think we have this wonderful relationship that just has so many pieces to it that it just um, (laughs) makes it very special. Well, and going to the title of your book, Feeling Twice Blessed, how have you reflected upon that, that rather than focusing on all the tragedy all of the time, you really do feel blessed and having had that kind of a blessing two times? Right. You know, I feel like a lot of people look for um, one true love in their life, and I feel like that God had really honestly just given me a chance to find true love, you know, twice. And, um, you know, I I compare it to having a baby. I remember when I had Jacqueline, um, when she was just a baby and thinking like, oh my goodness, how could you, how could I ever love another child? Like I love this child. Um, and then when I had my second son, Cash, it's the same thing. It's just like your heart just grows. And, um, it's the same way with being able to still just be so in love with, um, and Heath and still love Steve, just to be able to have a big enough heart to love them both. That's wonderful. One of the things that you said in your book, Shelley, is you said, through my own personal tragedy, I felt a closeness to God that I believe I would never have known without going through such intense heartbreak. And of course, we know the promises in scripture about God working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And sometimes people kind of throw that verse as kind of a trite thing to say in a hard time, but it seems that you've really seen the truth of that and experienced the truth of that verse in your life. Right. You know, honestly, I believe that if we really just wholeheartedly seek Christ and draw near to Him, that He will draw near to us. You know, in that verse, you know, um, you know, all things do work out, you know, for if we're called according to His purpose, but we do have to, you know, um, we have to be really, really seeking Him, too. And I think that I've just found so many hidden treasures, you know, in God and just in His Word through just searching for Him, you know, wholeheartedly. Um, you know, and of course, don't get me wrong, there were some days that I, of course, you know, you're so broken that I, I didn't have words to pray. I didn't know, you know, what to pray. I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to, you know, get in the Word. I didn't want to, you know, do any of it. Yes. But, you know, I knew that, that that was the only thing that was going to get me through. So I turned on my praise music, you know, and I clung to those promises. And I said them over and over until I believed them hmm. and just that they were just hidden in my heart um, so that they could just, you know, abide there and, you know, come out and, and overflow, you know, with the hope that only He can give. Yeah. Have you had to work through any particular issues of forgiveness when you reflect back? You know, I really haven't. Um, You know, I think that I knew that the root of bitterness would just take hold that if I did not forgive people. So I was just dealing so much with just being able to handle my my own grief, you know, and getting through my daughter's grief as well, which felt very, very heavy for me for to know that, you know, she um, would live in this life, you know, without a, a father, grow up without a father, you know, but God continued to, you know, put his promises, you know, in my head and just know that he was going to be the father to the fatherless. Um, Mm -hmm. But the forgiveness was something that I really, really just did not let um, take hold of. The unforgiveness was something I did not let take hold of my life. Yeah. Well, you understand, obviously, that the Lord is in control of all things. That seems to be a recurring theme in your book. Right, right. Well, I mean, and and I definitely think, you know, that just what, you know, Satan meant for evil and Al-Qaeda meant for evil, you know, on that day that, you know, God can use for His glory. You know, I mean, I've seen you know, people personally, you know, come to know Jesus as their Savior through that. And of course, you know, I want that because I don't want, you know, Steve's life to be in vain. And I don't want this horrible tragedy to be in vain. I want people to come to know, you know, Jesus Christ as their Savior through everything. 
That's amazing. And I mean, that is obviously what any Christian would hope to say, having gone through something like you've gone through, which we can't even understand what that's been like for you. But it sure is an encouragement, I would imagine, to your brothers and sisters in Christ all over the place who've heard your story and have read your book, because that that is the most wonderful thing of all when you can come to a place where you can say Christ is enough. And even in our deepest grief, there is hope. And I hope people will really, really read for themselves everything that you've written in your book. It's called Twice Blessed, A Journey of Hope Through 9-11. Shelly Genevieve Calhoun with us. Shelly, thank you so much. God bless you. And it was just wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. God bless you. God bless you. Take care. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by a firm film, Show Me the Father. The creators of War Room and Courageous, the Kendrick brothers, explore fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters September 10th. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. I wonder if all these liberals from across the country really understand how we in Texas think about their raging and their meltdowns and their freakouts over the Heartbeat Act. We don't care. We don't really care what you think of us. We don't care if you stop making movies in Texas. We don't care if you want to go on strike here and there and, you know, all of some of these crazy things that the liberals are saying on social media. We don't care. You know what we care about? We care about the lives of unborn children. And that's it. You don't have to come here. If you don't like it, you don't have to come here. You can stay in that paradise that we call California or Oregon. Have fun with that. But it is incredible, isn't it, to see the demonic activity that really is demonic activity coming out of the mouths of some of these people. And it's not just what they're saying. It's also what is taking place surrounding this entire fight over the Heartbeat Act in the state of Texas. For example, the San Antonio Current reports the Satanic Temple has joined the legal wrangling to block or overturn Texas's severe new abortion law. Severe. You're saving lives. How is that severe? And then they go on to say that the temple filed a letter with the U.S. Food and Drug Administration arguing that its Texas members should have legal access to abortion pills. Their attorneys contend its status as a non-theistic religious organization should ensure access to abortion as a faith-based right. Well, I'm sure Malik would be proud of you. Now we have another story from CNS News that a single abortionist, this is just so sickening, but a single abortionist at a clinic here in Texas, in Fort Worth actually, performed 67 abortions in 17 hours before the state's heartbeat law went into effect. It just makes you sick. You tell me this isn't completely satanic. It's completely satanic. Then you have President Biden asking the Department of Justice to find ways to limit the Texas heartbeat law. And he goes on to say that life does not begin at conception. Fantastic Roman Catholic. Are you Joe Biden? No, because you just kind of pick and choose what you want to be. And you also have this wonderful sense that I can tell people that I'm associated with a church and that'll make me look religious. It's absolutely incredible. Now, when we're really talking about people going off the rails, you've got to go over to MSNBC. You just do, because nobody can go off the rails like the people over 
at MSNBC. Host Tiffany Cross was highlighted by the Media Research Center. She had on some guests talking about this horrendous heartbeat act, one of which was Ellie Mistal, the justice correspondent from The Nation, who's really off the rails. First, I want to play for you a little bit of the host's rant. Listen to this. Cut one. But we have to begin with the latest on Texas's new abortion law, which honestly seems like something straight out of Gilead. It relies on citizens, regular citizens just like you and me, to enforce it, basically letting them sue anybody who helps a woman get an abortion. And it awards them 10 stacks if they succeed. This entire thing about protecting the fetus when they care so little for life uh, uh, in this country is beyond comprehension. Uh, It feels like they really must hate women in Texas and all across the country. How is it possible the Supreme Court allowed this to stand? I know that they haven't ruled on it, uh, but they can rule later. But we have an actual handmaid on the court. So I have to tell you, I'm not so excited about depending on them to protect me and my right to choose that power over those uh, of us who are not in power. Okay, just an unhinged rant. You got to go back to the handmaid's tale. Everything is the handmaid's tale. Who cares about the handmaid's tale? It's ridiculous. It's been estimated, by the way, that since the law took effect, 150 lives are being saved every single day in Texas because 85 to 90 percent of the abortions now have been stopped because of this heartbeat act. That's not caring so little for life. That's caring a lot for life and hating women. Seems to me the people who hate women are the ones who are slaughtering them. But maybe that's just me. Now she turns to Ellie Mistal. This is just off the rails. I can't even tell you what happened here, but you can listen to it for yourself. When he is asked, what should President Biden do to stop this Texas Heartbeat Act? This is what he said. Cut to. None of this is easy, guys, and none of this is clean. And to stop these people at this point, it's going to require some creativity and it's going to require the Biden administration willing to get its hands dirty. There are solutions here, but there's no silver bullet. There's nothing that Biden can do and then stay behind like, oh, this is institutionally the way that things. No, no, no. You have to be creative. You have to be willing to get you have to be willing to go buck wild in order to stop them. So one option would be for Biden to federalize doctors, to hire a federal force of doctors, send them into Texas to protect people's constitutional rights. Because the Texas law is only enforceable through private civil action, federal employees are protected from private civil lawsuits through the doctrine of qualified immunity. There's also federal enclave law. Now, that would allow military bases to basically perform medical services without being sued um, by, again, private citizens. Not bonkers at all. Just get a federal force of doctors to invade the state of Texas so they can continue to get their hands dirty. Did you catch that? Yeah, Texas has its hands dirty. No, maybe Planned Parenthood has its hands dirty. I'm I'm not even trying to be flippant about it, but who are you kidding? Then you have Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, over the weekend talking with Dana Bash about this issue. Listen to this exchange. Cut three. Ron, before I let you go, I have to ask about the Supreme Court declining to block a Texas law which bans all abortion after six weeks of pregnancy and effectively deputizes private citizens to enforce it. I know the president is directing federal agencies to look into ways to address this, but this is the law of the land right now. There are women 
who are scared and don't know what to do in Texas. You know the law better than most people I know in this country. Is the reality that there isn't a whole lot the administration can do right now to change things in Texas? Dan, I, I hope that's not the reality. Uh, we have the best lawyers at the Justice Department looking for legal remedies to protect women who are seeking to exercise their constitutional rights. We have the team at HHS uh, looking at what means we can do to try to get women the health care services they need in the face of this Texas law. And we have the Gender Policy Council here at the White House, uh, the first time a president's ever had a policy council devoted to gender issues, coordinating all this work to bring options forward for the president and the vice so president. So you think it's possible that you, uh, you think it's possible that you can do something at a federal find, level? We are going to find ways, if they're at all possible, and I think they are possible, we're going to find ways to make a difference for the women of Texas uh, to try to protect their constitutional rights. Yes. You're a sicko. You're all sickos. And all of a sudden you've rediscovered gender. You're the people who don't even believe in gender. You're the people whose bureaucracy talks about pregnant people for crying out loud. Who do you think you're kidding? All of a sudden you care about women. Oh, Jen Psaki said the same thing. She said the same thing when a reporter confronted her about this issue. It's kind of hilarious in an ironic sort of way. This was the exchange. Cut four. Why does the president support abortion when his own Catholic faith teaches abortion is morally wrong? He believes that it's a woman's right, it's a woman's body, and it's her choice. Why does the president, who does he believe then should look out for the unborn child? He believes that it's up to a woman to make those decisions uh, and up to a woman to make those decisions with her doctor. I know you've never faced those choices, nor have you ever been pregnant. But for women out there who have faced those choices, this is an incredibly difficult thing. The president believes their rights should be respected. Go ahead. I think we got to move on. I think we have to move on. You've had plenty of time today. Excuse me. How do you know he's never been pregnant? I think this is an assault on that reporter's gender identity. How do you know that he doesn't self-identify as a woman? That is so insulting. I'm calling the human rights campaign on you, Jen. I am. This is an outrage. You guys are the same administration going all out to try to enforce the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, a horrible decision saying that employers can't fire workers due to gender identity or sexuality. And now they're saying through the Department of Education and the EEOC that failure to recognize a person's gender identity can constitute actionable discrimination under Title VII. I don't know. Somebody's going to have to report you, Jen, and your boss, because this is not okay. It's pregnant people. People can get pregnant. People, you cannot just choose one sex and say only one sex can get pregnant because that is not okay in this new Gnostic reality imposed on America by the Department of Education and by the EEOC under the guidance of Joe Biden, who says that life does not begin at conception, even though I don't think he knows which way is up at this point, but he's going to give us some kind of across the board theological statement of some sort that goes against the church he claims to be a part of and believe it believes in its doctrine, these people are crazy. And by the way, when we come back, I'm going to break down some of the myths about this new Texas abortion law. You're going to love this. Don't go away. Stay with us. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? 
do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. Aria lives in the Middle East in a radical Muslim family. She accepted the invitation of a Christian friend to attend a weekly Bible study and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. She took her Bible study booklet home, hiding it in her room before her mother found it and gave it to her father. He severely beat young Aria and called the authorities to report her as an infidel. They took her to a remote cell where they assaulted her and the Christian friend before letting them go. These two women didn't grow bitter. They grew bold and together they've seen hundreds come to Christ in the Middle East, where Christians are urged to support new believers. You suddenly realize how critical it is for Christians not just to assume God will look after their brothers and sisters who have converted from Islam, but that they will be prepared to walk with them. Help send God's word to believers like Aria. One Bible is only $5, and a limited-time match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YESWORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I do have to get in one more crazy cut. You just have to understand who these people are on the left. They're bonkers. They're absolutely bonkers. They've lost touch with reality. They are over the top in their criticisms. This is how much they love baby slaughter. Can you imagine being that much of a person who has had his conscience seared? I I said that weirdly, but if you had your conscience seared, you wouldn't end up like these people fighting to kill children, fighting to kill children. That's what these people are all up in arms about. How dare you save the lives of children? Well, they don't care about American lives in Afghanistan. They don't care about Afghan lives in Afghanistan. So why would they care about your kids? They don't care about your kids. They care about power. They care about money. They care about their radical ideas of gender identity and sexual orientation and all these made up terms. And then when the cause comes along in which they have to start talking about women again, like with the Texas Heartbeat Act, then all of a sudden they switch course and start talking about women. These people are nuts. Why anybody would vote for this crowd is beyond my understanding. But let's turn to that reliable source of insanity, Joy Reid over at MSNBC, who thinks that the conservative Christians in Texas, whom she blames for the Texas Heartbeat Act, are basically the Taliban. Yeah, she said it. Listen to Cut 5. What scares me um, is that despite the fact that, as Ellie says, there are large majorities 
you know, who, who still want democracy, who still believe that everyone should be able to vote regardless of race, regardless of age, regardless, you know, of what state they live in, that everyone should have equal access to the ballot, that believe that when, a, when somebody wins an election and somebody loses, that should carry. You shouldn't be able to just flip an election and give it to who you want. The, the, the things that the vast majority of people want, women to have liberty, personal bodily liberty, most people want that. But that between Republicans who don't respect the rules and the laws and who are willing to, to cheat and willing to do whatever it takes, and now the courts being on their side, and there now being a solid majority of them who want to enact hyper-right-wing, basically even, you know, a certain type of evangelical rule over us, which is Talibanism, right? This is our sect, and you will live by our sect, whether you want to be a part of it or not. That scares me, because if the court is willing to do that, where do we go from here if we don't expand the court? I can't think of what else we do other than expand the court. They're stacked now to essentially suborn our democracy to their very particular version of right-wing evangelical Christian, what they call Christianity, and they're gonna force the rest of us to live under those rules. That is no different than Talibanism, and we're just let, watching it happen like it ain't happening. It's happening, guys. Wake up, everybody. Do you live in Texas? I don't think you live in Texas. Uh, evangelicals, by the way, are going door to door, just like the Taliban in Afghanistan. And we're executing people. Did you know that? We're executing people. Oh, no, wait a minute. The abortionist in Fort Worth executed 67 people hurriedly so he could get it in under the wire before the Texas Heartbeat Act took effect. And these people are in favor of that. So how are we the Taliban? We're not the Taliban. We're saving lives. We're going in and saving lives. And by the way, it was done legitimately because our representatives elected, duly elected by the people of Texas were the ones who enacted this law legitimately. These people lie and lie and lie and lie and lie. And I don't know why anybody watches them. I only watch them to show you and play for you the insanity that goes on on TV stations you're not watching wisely. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of these myths surrounding the Texas abortion law, because I think this is really important. There's a good piece over at Live Action. I think Students for Life of America actually originally put it out. But there are all kinds of myths going around about the Texas Heartbeat Act. For example, saying it's the Wild West as vigilante justice is unleashed. And they point out that, no, the heartbeat law doesn't entail a cops and robbers scenario of pro-lifers chasing women around with citations. It empowers individuals to do what law enforcement refuses to do nationwide, which is to hold abortionists accountable to the laws that Americans have passed. American abortionists are treated as a special class of citizens. Roe v. Wade granted special legal privileges to them. Adam McLeod, actually, from National Review said this, the court's abortion precedents immunize abortionists from basic legal accountability, such as general medical regulations, professional oversight, common law protections for bodily integrity, and other laws that would protect women and children from harm and which apply to all other medical professionals. So the law in Texas has two main parts. It's illegal to kill a baby with a heartbeat. And also individuals are allowed to report violations of that law, something that pro-abortion law enforcement has refused to do. In fact, John Segoe, who is the legislative director at Texas Right to Life, did an interview with The Atlantic and they asked why this legal approach. And he said two main motivations here. The first one is lawless district attorneys that the pro-life movement has dealt with for years. In October, 
district attorneys from around the country publicly signed a letter saying they will not enforce pro-life laws. They said that even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, they are not going to use resources holding the abortion industry to account. And that shows that the best way to get a pro-life policy into effect is not by imposing criminal penalties, but civil liability. Who's not enforcing the law? Who's against democracy, Joy Reid? Who's against democracy? This sounds an awful lot like the whole LGBT nonsense that went on, starting with Gavin Newsom, by the way. Remember in San Francisco? And the whole fight over, I'm not going to enforce the law. I'm not going to be on the side of California voters who passed Proposition 8. Remember that whole thing? And the judge in San Francisco who said he wasn't going to enforce. I remember all of this. I remember the Obergefell decision. And last I checked, that was five unelected judges. They're on the court legitimately. But America didn't vote for gay marriage, so-called gay marriage. In fact, more than 30 states had constitutional amendments that were passed by their state citizens saying we want to protect real marriage. And the Supreme Court said, stomp, 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 stomp all over your state's rights. We don't care. And nobody fought back except Roy Moore in Alabama. Nobody fought back. It just happened because the states wouldn't fight back. But who was overreaching in that case? It wasn't the states. It was the Supreme Court. So let's remember that. It's crazy. The second is that in, in this whole issue of the main, the main reasons here that this act was put into place was that the pro-life movement, Seiko said, is extremely frustrated with activist judges at the district level who are not doing their job to adjudicate conflicts between parties, but who in fact go out of their way to score ideological points blocking pro-life laws because they think they violate the Constitution or pose undue burdens. Also, nothing stops law enforcement from doing their job so that the general population doesn't have to. Their dereliction of duty forced the hand of Americans who stand strong to protect our most vulnerable little citizens. Uh, This idea that the law punishes women, no, the Texas law clearly identifies that the party who does the actual killing or aids or abets the killing of the child with a heartbeat is the guilty party. They go into some details on that. Number three, another myth, women who miscarry will be in legal danger. No, this bizarre argument has been tried in the past, but the truth remains, miscarriage and abortion are radically different and good pro-life laws like this one reflect that truth. Here's another one. Texas is going to have an epidemic of unwanted kids. Yeah. Let's talk about the border crisis. If you want to go down that road. No, they don't care about that. Kids in cages. They didn't care about that. If the Biden administration is guilty of having kids in cages, AOC has, you know, she's busy. She can't go down to the border and cry and do a photo op at the Texas border because that doesn't stand, you know, it kind of stands in the way of her politics. It's, it's insane. Also, you also have... Over 2,700 pregnancy help centers nationwide offering free services to those in need like material assistance, aid in job seeking, parenting classes, ultrasounds, etc. Just like our friends at Preborn. There are all kinds of pro-life pregnancy centers who are helping women in need every single day. So there are other myths here that are broken apart and and shouted down. And I'm glad that this piece is there. Uh, Also, this claim that now the Heartbeat Act is safe is something that's true for now, but corporate abortion and its political friends are arguing for codifying Roe. This is what the Biden administration wants to do. This is what Planned Parenthood has wanted to do. As we've discussed before with Mark Crutcher from Life Dynamics, he is of the opinion, and I think he's right on this, that what the progressives really want to do is protect big abortion under the auspices of the federal government. And that way, they believe 
they will protect abortion on demand. Well, we'll see how it all goes down because there's that very important case out of Mississippi that is due to be heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. But you have gotten a taste now of what the salivating pro-abortion crowd thinks about babies' lives. It's all about women. No, it isn't. If it were about women, you would save the lives of the little babies who are females. And you should save the lives of the little boys, too. That's what we're doing here in Texas. And God bless this state. I'm so proud to be here. This hour, Janet Mefford today is brought to you by a firm film, Show Me the Father, from the Kendrick Brothers, the creators of War Room and Courageous Explore Fatherhood through five true stories. Show Me the Father, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters, September 10th. God bless you. Thanks so much for listening. And we will see you next time.